Our passage today will be in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. We'll be continuing our series in Romans. Uh, there's no need to fear. Pastor Jeff is still here. He's going to be taking a little break, but he shall return uh, in July. We'll just continue on in Romans. We're starting a new section here in chapter 12. We're going to look at these first two verses, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Pardon me. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul, having taught the Romans so much of God's eternal purposes in salvation already in the book or the letter to the Romans, he now wants his readers to press on with a full reformation of their lives. These two verses are going to form an introduction to a new section. There have been several sections uh, as we've gone through Romans where Paul has addressed different theological topics, but Paul's going to do something he's not done so far. He's now going to take up a section on very practical, specific actions and ways of living that the Romans are to engage in. And that's going to begin here in chapter 12 and go on through the rest of the letter. Paul's purpose is he wants his readers to press on with this full change in their lives that began when they became Christians. The Christians he is writing to in Rome have taken the first steps in the new life of Christ. But in these chapters that are coming up, Paul's going to show them how the full Christian life must be lived. And of course, it's going to be lived within the church. So many of these things he's going to talk about are going to take place in our relationships within the church. These Christians in Rome are going to have to interact with society, with their government. So he's going to address that. There's going to be friction between the Gentiles coming into the church who know nothing of Christ and older, more mature believers who've understand the deeper mysteries or understood the deeper mysteries of Scripture. All these things Paul now is turning to to prepare the Roman Christians to make this radical reformation, renovation of their lives. In short, Paul writes to convince them that they haven't just changed religion when they've become Christians, but they are now priests of Christ, offering themselves their whole lives as holy offerings. And what do you need to do in listening to this sermon? When you leave worship today, you have to confront this same reality. You who are now a new work in Christ, whether you are a strong believer or a weak believer, whether you are a new believer or a mature believer, 
you must do this continual transformation of the mind, of your body, of your whole life, because you are being made into a holy, sanctified offering to Jehovah God in Christ. The believer must constantly be reforming what we think we know is right that we've learned from our society or from our upbringing or from any other source. This is a heart-first approach and a thorough commitment to Christ, and it is the only thing that will allow us to understand and do what Paul is going to teach us in the next several and final chapters of the letter to the Romans. So understand here, when we look at these two verses today, we're really looking at the introduction to a much bigger piece of Scripture, okay? So let's do that. Let's look at these two verses, and we're going to do a deep dive. We're going to look at the several phrases here. I've got five separate little portions of these two verses we're going to look at, and then we're going to try to make the bridge to how we're to change our lives in response to this, and really how we're to prepare ourselves to receive what we're going to get over the next many weeks as we go through the rest of the letter to the Romans. And in context here, Paul is writing, if you remember, to a group, a mixed group in Rome, probably a couple churches, where there are pagan Romans who've converted to Christ, and there are Jews who've made their way to Rome for whatever reason and have converted to Christ, and now they're together in a church. And he's writing to them in the hopes to build them up and to be a base for him to go further to the west, to Spain. We don't know if he actually did that or not. He probably didn't. But he's hoping to build up this, these churches in Rome to support him in future work of his ministry. So he begins here with, I appeal to you, therefore. And let's look at this, therefore. Because what Paul is doing is he's connecting this new section of Scripture to everything that has come before it. He's not just connecting it to the immediate thing we've read about the inscrutable nature of God that we looked at last week, how God is just so different from us that we can't you know, draw on our own faculties and knowledge to understand Him. It has to be revealed to us. He's not talking about that uh, agricultural uh, example he gave of branches being broken off and other branches being grafted in prior to that, he's talking about this whole uh, 11 chapters that have gone on before him, or before the, these two verses. The, in the Greek, this word, therefore, is first. It's right up at the front in the ESV. They've moved it back a little bit, and that's fine. But... Uh, this, therefore, is pointing back to all uh, of what we've seen in the previous 11 chapters. And I'm going to give you a little outline. Don't worry, I'm not going to re-preach all 11 chapters. I know some of you are worried about that. But let's look at some of the high points very briefly. Chapters 1 through 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you remember that? All are due the punishment for sin, which is death. If we get out of chapter 6... God has put all these people of the world, all of his creation, under sin, whether Jew or Greek, and then he saved some of them. And how has he saved them? He's justified them by faith alone. Do you remember that 
from the end of chapter 3. And then he's given us an example of faith in uh, chapter 4, a faith that causes God to impute the righteousness that is missing in Abraham. What does he say, Paul say? God credits Abraham righteousness because of his faith. Right? It's not a work that Abraham does. It's not anything he earns. But it's something that Abraham possesses, given to him by God. And so God very graciously puts righteousness on him. I said I wouldn't re-preach all this, so let me move on. God, uh, Paul then moved on to talk about how those who are saved, out of that group of people who are saved with a faith like Abraham's, they are united with Christ and they're united with each other, and that unification, the believer with Christ and the believer with other believers, comes about because God liberally pours out His Holy Spirit on those people who are saved. The people that God saves, the people who have a faith like Abraham, He dwells with them and unifies them with Himself and with each other. And then as we've seen recently in the last few chapters, God is at work among both Jews and Gentiles, both his chosen people, his chosen race, but also those pagan people who've been excluded so far. God has now worked with, among them to complete his redemptive purposes. God's gone so far as to break off some of, or prune off some of his own chosen people to bring in the nations, to graft them in. Remember how he reversed that agricultural example. Usually you take this vigorous wild tree and add these cultivated branches, but in his example, he breaks off these cultivated branches and brings these pagan wild branches in to his kingdom. So it's all these things. Therefore, because of all of this, and come with me back to the text in verse 1, by the mercies of God. Do you see that there? We would say because of, due to the mercies of God, he means all these things that we've just gone over these many months, these things I've just summarized. All these things that God has done have a consequence for you, the believer, for you, Roman. What is that consequence? Well, that consequence is, is what he appeals to them to do in verse 1, is to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. To present their bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, what is he talking about here? In the ancient world, people worshipped their gods for, by bringing animals to be killed and offered up to the god. That's what the sacrifice is. It's an offering. And in Rome, they did this. Typically, bulls. They would bring these bulls into a temple, they would slaughter them in a ritual way, and they would offer that up to whatever God they're worshiping. You may know also that the Jews did this in the Old Testament, right? They had a whole pattern of animal sacrifice that was to be offered to Jehovah first in the tent of meeting, later in the temple that Solomon builds. And we also know that among many cultures, pagan cultures, this type of sacrifice went to despicable and evil lengths to include the sacrifice of humans and children. But Paul is not talking 
about these type of types of sacrifice where something is killed, right? Remember, he's writing to pagans who've come into the church in Rome, and he's trying to get them to understand that because of all God's done, they have a responsibility to God now. They have to offer him something, and it's a sacrifice, but it's not an animal sacrifice. It's not a dead sacrifice. He qualifies it by saying it's a living sacrifice. He actually kind of says something that is uh, it doesn't make sense. It's a misnomer because you don't offer living things as sacrifices. Right? He's radically changing things. He's saying to the church in Rome, guys, because of all this stuff I've been writing to you about, do you realize you owe God a sacrifice, but something new, a living sacrifice? Because they've been become followers of Christ, because they have a faith like Abraham, they have become themselves the thing devoted as an offering to the God. Now, when you devote something in worship, it becomes holy. The word holy be made holy, or the word consecrate, you may have heard, or the word sanctify, if you're familiar with all these terms. You know, English loves to have 30 different terms for the same thing, and that's what's going on here. They all mean to be set apart. What you devoted to the God, you didn't then take home and use for common things. Remember in the temple, there were instruments that were used in the temple worship, but they were only used as in the temple. You weren't to take them home and to use them at home. They were dedicated. They were special. Paul is saying, because of all these things that have gone by so far, in the letter I've written to you, do you realize you now have become set apart? You've become holy because you now are dedicated to God, and you need to present yourself to God in that way. Now, we might be conf conf confused at this point. If you're following me along so far, because, you know, we've talked about that Christ has made a sacrifice as well. And what we don't want to confuse is the idea that we need to add to Christ's sacrifice. So what am I talking about here? Well, in the letter to Hebrews, where, where the author there goes into great detail about this, he uses, he describes, first off, that Christ is a better high priest than the priests under Aaron, that he's of a new and higher order, so that when he gives a sacrifice, it's a better offering than what these priests under the old law could offer. And then the author of the Hebrews goes on to say that this sacrifice that he offers, that Christ offers, is a perfect sacrifice. It's a one-time sacrifice that he gives that never is repeated because it doesn't need to be repeated. It is so perfect in what it is and how it is offered that it wipes away any offense that God has to us. Now, if this is Sunday school, I would quiz you and see if you know that huge theological word that describes that sacrifice. But since this is a sermon, I'm just going to tell you. That big word is called propitiation. Do you remember that word, propitiation? It's fun to do in Scrabble if you can get all those letters together, right? Propitiation is a sacrifice that's offered that just doesn't deflect the anger of God. It doesn't carry away the wrath of God, but it fully satisfies. It obliterates, wipes out the offense. 
That's what propitiation means. That's the type of sacrifice that Christ offers. That's the type of sacrifice that Christ is. So if he's offered the sacrifice in the letter of the Hebrews, what is Paul talking about that we have to offer some living sacrifice? We shouldn't need to add to what Christ has done, do we? We do not. Paul's used this term too. Back in chapter 3, you may not remember it, but Paul has also used this term of propitiation, the sacrifice that completely and thoroughly satisfies about Christ. So Paul now is talking about something different. He's not talking about we need to add something to Christ because what Christ has done, Paul agrees with the author of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, that what Christ has done is perfect and complete, that nothing needs to be added to it. So he's talking about here something wholly different. He's talking about a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a lesser sacrifice, a sacrifice that's offered, again, in response to everything we have seen that has come before. Because Christ has done this, because Christ has obliterated that sin debt, because Christ has lived perfectly, and God has given us that righteousness that he has that we need because of our faith like Abraham's, we no longer owe anything to God. And yet, because that has happened in the past, now we need to do something in response. It's an offering of thanksgiving. It's an offering of love. We could say it's an offering of recognition of what Christ has done. But it is not an offering that adds to or in any way completes what Christ has done. Does that make sense? It is an offering that is to be, if you come back to verse 1, holy, right? It's set apart. It's acceptable to God. That Greek word there means can also mean well-pleasing. We kind of in English nowadays, when we think of acceptable, you know, Dad, I cleaned my room. That's acceptable, right? It's the bare minimum probably in that usage. Here it means well-pleasing. It's something good. It's something that the Father looks upon says, that's good. It pleases me. It's recognition, I would say, if we could add to what's being said here, that we understand Christ and what he's done, right? It is a good thing that we do, not as a work for salvation, but in response to receiving salvation. And notice what he says here, that it is... Uh, your spiritual worship. You see that there? You know, you might in your translation have a note. I have a note in my ESV where they give an alternative. It could also mean your rational service. It could mean uh, your reasonable service, excuse me, or your rational worship. This is a notoriously difficult little phrase to translate. I think Paul is just following up, excuse me, on, on this idea of therefore, because of the mercies of God, these two phrases that we've already seen, these are things you are now going to do. Because Christ has done this, you now need to do these things that I'm going to talk about. You need to do them with the attitude that you're presenting an offering to God, a living sacrifice. Presenting your body as an offering, not to be killed, 
as an animal sacrifice, but as a spiritual form of worship. Notice the contrast there. Presenting your body as spiritual worship. The body and the spirit are separate things, right? They're separate domains. To do your spiritual worship, we're going to have to figure out over the next several weeks what it means to present our body as a living sacrifice. Keep in mind, this is just the introduction to what we're going to see in the next several weeks. So we don't work for salvation, but our obligation, our reasonable service, our spiritual work is to present this repeated offering to God of ourselves. Well, how were those in Roman to do that? Rome to do this? What were they to present? You know, when we get down to brass text, what are the acts they're to engage in? Paul's going to give us a summary in verse 2. But again, I keep repeating this. It is really all the, what's going to follow in this section from 12, 1 to 15, 30. Okay? So as you go on, I hope you'll be able to look back at 12, 1 and 2 and keep this in mind. These specific commands Paul gives in the next many weeks are the things we're to do as an offering to God. In fact, we know this because there's this ancient literary form where a phrase is repeated, and I wonder if you'll see this here. 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. If you page over to 15.30, you will see Paul end this section by saying, I appeal to you, brothers. I call this an inclusio. There won't be a test on that. But he's using this repeated phrase to create a unit here. Like we might create a chapter with a heading. Well, they didn't do that. Your chapters were added later. He's using this, I appeal to you, brothers, to show that this is one big section of text. And what we have in 1 and 2 is the summary. So let's go on to what he's appealing for them to do in verse 2. In short, a believer presents himself or herself as an offering to God by doing the work of sanctification under the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is just another worry of saying be made holy. Chapters 12 through 15 will give us the details, but it starts with two contrasting commands given in verse 2. Two contrasting commands. Let's look at them. Come with me to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, or again, you might have another note there, this age. Do not be conformed to the society you live in, do not be conformed to what the media or your peers or what your countrymen tell you is right and wrong. Don't be conformed, you Romans, to what the other Romans say is the right way to worship God, pagan worship, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We cannot assume that what we have learned from our society or from our friends or from our parents, that what we have learned about how to worship God is right. Scripture alone tells us how to worship God. Remember, all the way back in Romans 1, Paul said what can be known about God has been shown to people, and what they do with it is they warp it and pervert it and twist it into idolatry. So Paul is warning us that we can't assume anything that we know that comes from other sources 
We can't assume any of those things are the right ways to worship God. You see how writing to the people in Rome, coming out of paganism, they would have a lot of baggage, a lot of bad habits of worship that they need to renovate or reform away. And we've seen this already, Romans 6, 13. You probably have all these verses memorized, but I'll read them for you. Romans 6, 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Romans 6, 16, do you not know if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. If you present your body to a master and say, I'm your slave, then doesn't it follow that they're now your master? It does. Romans 6.19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, to that pagan system of worship that the Romans invented, and he goes on, but you see there, he's given us these same commands before. These are the negative prohibitions. Don't present yourselves, don't present yourselves. And now he's saying, don't be conformed to this age. Don't be conformed to your society. Don't be conformed to this world. Rather, what you're to do is what he goes on to say in verse 2, to engage in a transformation, to be transformed. That implies someone else is acting on you. And we know that that's the Holy Spirit leading, empowering this transformation. And it's done by renovating or renewing your mind. Well, why is this transformation even needed? Right, he touched on this in one. That's why I chose this verse, Romans or uh, Genesis chapter 3, 23. We are fallen beings. We're not as we were made to be. Remember all the way back in Genesis 3, as God judges man in the fall that we read earlier, God reveals to us that we know both good, he makes his creation, he says it's good, he makes Adam and Eve, he says it's very good, and he rests. But at the end of three, he says, now man knows good and evil. God knows evil. God uses evil. He does not become sinless in the knowledge or use of evil. We, on the other hand, become enslaved to this knowledge of evil. We know good, but as Paul has labored to show us, we don't try to do it. What we do is we do all the evil that's available to us. If you don't believe that, find a toddler. Let them go. You'll see that that is our natural state. But for those of you who have been freed from the bondage of sin, those of you who desire to present yourselves as Paul is saying here, holy, pleasing, living sacrifices to Jehovah in Christ, you must be transformed. And we've seen this before as well. You probably have already anticipated this because you probably have this memorized too. Romans 8.29, that golden chain of redemption. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, not conformed to this age, not conformed to this world, not conformed to society's expectation of how you would live religiously, but be conformed to the image of his son. In sanctification, in the renewing of the mind, and I could spend another hour going through verses, and I won't do it, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, the work of sanctification, the work of renewing the mind, is the work of 
putting away sin, doing good works, not for salvation, but because God has provided them for us to be transformed, to be conformed to his son. We're all going to take different paths. The thief on the cross probably has the shortest path of sanctification. It's the few hours between when he expresses faith and he dies. Some of you were saved at a very young age and may live to a very old age. And God will be working on you in sanctification through that whole time. But it's not the amount of work that has to be done. It's the fact that God is working in you, the believer, to change you from what you were, fallen man, to the image of his son, rebuilding what he should have been. To offer these acceptable sacrifices that Paul is talking about here, what he's going to describe in the next several chapters, requires a whole transformation. It starts in the mind and the heart of the believer. It's directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, because we've seen that over and over in the past chapters. But it occurs in your life. You participate in it. You don't participate in the work of salvation, but now being saved, you participate in the work of sanctification, of being made holy. So Paul is going to just unload a torrent of direct, really specific commands to us in the next several chapters. Do this. Don't do that. Do you realize it's this way, so you should do this specific thing? All those things are sacrifices. They're offerings given to God. This is only this is the only way that the believers in Rome will know what he talks about here at the end of verse 2. The good, the acceptable, the perfect will of God. If you have DSV, it's written that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you'll have another note there where they rearrange it a little bit better in English. ESV tries to hold very closely to the word order of Greek. But those three adjectives, the good, the acceptable, the perfect, they modify the will of God. They describe for us the will of God. Now, if you sat out and I said, what do you think the will of God is like? You would probably describe it as good, right? The will of God is never bad or evil. The will of God is always acceptable. It's always well-pleasing. It always pleases, guess what? God. When he does his will, it's what he wants. When I try to have my will, it almost always never comes off, right? God's will is perfect. It's complete. It's thorough. It's everything. It's all-encompassing. If you want to know those things, You've got to do the things that Paul is going to teach us in the next several chapters. You've got to be transformed in your mind. You've got to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit has to empower that transformation. It begins in your mind, but it ends up being your body, your whole person presented to the Lord as a spiritual sacrifice. So these Roman believers must confront that a thorough renovation or reformation of their religious life is necessary in order to serve the Christ. Well, so what? How does that apply to you? You're not in Rome, right? Well, those Roman Christians knew what it meant to be a pagan. They knew how to do it, right? 
And the, the Jews that came in to the church in Rome, they knew how to be good Jews. They probably knew what the Pharisees taught, how to understand the Old Testament. Of course, what do we know? We know what our society tells us is right and wrong, if you can keep up with it. Imagine 10 years ago, it seemed like it was a whole totally different thing of what was right and wrong. And probably 10 years from now, it won't. But you are deluged daily through the media, through the people you work with, through advertisement. You ever think about companies spend millions and millions of dollars on advertisements, the psychology behind them. They present to you a worldview. They present to you a way of living rightly and wrongly. They presume to tell you how to worship God. We actually have quite a bit in common with these people who came in to the church in Rome. We don't necessarily know their religion, but we see that their society told them what was right and wrong, their age, their world, just like ours does today. In fact, every one of you, myself included, has been inculcated, soaked in the religious age that we live in. You can't divide yourself from it. You can't be neutral from it. And yet, we need this radical transformation. Our reasonable worship to God is to present Him a holy, a well-pleasing and acceptable sacrifice of ourselves. How do we do it? Again, we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, it has to be spirit-led, it has to be spirit-directed, and it has to be comprehensive. It has to be a total reformation. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. Don't get me wrong. It's the work of reformation that we need to do. Wherever you start, however far you get, whether you go backwards and fail, we have to engage in this work of reformation in our lives. Now I'm way off my notes. It might take me a minute to find out where I was. This change of mindset lays the groundwork for the following applications that Paul is going to give to the Romans and to us in the next couple chapters. This is one of the best parts of Scripture because all that veil of difficulty, if you guys have been in Sunday school, I can't fail to plug Sunday school. Uh, if you've been here on Wednesday night at prayer meeting when we've looked at the Psalms, can't fail to plug that either. As you go through those Old Testament and the Psalms, there's a veil there, right? There's types and shadows. It's hard to understand. The theology of Romans is a high theology. But now Paul is going to get down to, these are the things you need to do. In this situation, you need to do this. This is a part of Scripture where it comes closest to us in understanding. It's going to be these next several chapters where Paul's going to begin to reform the relationships within the church. He's beginning to, begin to reform the thoughts and the actions of how we deal with the state, the emperor. He's going to start to even deal with how we deal with new believers who come in and don't know what they're doing. Don't know that they've sat in our seat. Don't know whether they should take grape juice or wine in communion. And all the difficulties that come about from those types of conflicts. He's going to tell us how we deal those things. And as we learn them, as we deal with Scripture, the mind is being renovated. 
What we need to do is when that renovation comes smack up against what the world's taught us, we need to recognize, hey, this is the world's teaching. I need to put that down. I need to push forward into the kingdom, into the work of reformation and renovation of the mind. Christ's church is constantly being built up and rebuilt through this reformation. It's continual. Our church plant in Bonham is not that dissimilar to these new churches in Rome. Now, again, we're not pagan Romans, we're not converted Jews, but we have this cultural baseline of religious worship that has to be renovated away. And by the way, I'm not saying that what we've been doing in our bulletin is all wrong and we're gonna, next week we're gonna do something radical. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying within us, when we come, and we assume that we know what the right way to worship Christ is, we've got to find those things. And we've got to lay them up there on the altar with the Word. And then the Word has to drive them out. That is your spiritual service. That is your reasonable worship, is that work of renewal. Are we prepared to evaluate all the mercies of God that we've seen in Romans? I mean, are you, the first thing that comes to my mind is I don't even remember all of the stuff we've looked at in Romans. Do you? No. That's why we're going to preach to you and at you and at ourselves every week something from the Word of God. So this continual work of reformation can go on. Sometimes we like parts of Scripture better than others. Have you ever experienced that? There's some parts of Scripture we don't like to go to because it might hit us here. But even then, there's some parts of Scripture that are just really good. You know, I love Romans 3, that last part. Justification by faith alone for, for you know, trying to be a nine-point Calvinist. Or, that's a joke, but, right? I love that part, right? But I've got to consider all these things in the Word, not just the parts that are really good that I love. They're all really good. So I promised you, so what? Well, if you're a believer recognize and contemplate these full mercies of God laid out by Paul in Romans and indeed in all of Scripture as we encounter. See, too, it's not just justification by faith alone or union with Christ or engrafting of the Gentiles. Those are good things, but it's not just those things. It's all these things. It's the deep and wide drama of redemption that has been playing out for millennia through the text of Scripture. It's playing out in your lives. All these things are mercies of God. And because of that, we have to do the work of evaluating the beliefs that we bring into the church, what our presuppositions are, things that come from our culture, things that we learn from advertisements, from TV, from our coworkers. There's a moral revolution there's a reformation going on in our society. And we have got to be comparing that to what the Word says. And the Word has got to be victorious. All these things that society has taught us have to be scoured out and give way to the will of God. If we want to worship God rightly, especially if you're a new believer, we have to move beyond the basics of just reforming our public behavior. The things that people can see. I don't mean, you know, standing on a stage, but a lot of times it's easy to be converted and to give up those sins that everyone else sees. 
Now we've got to work on those sins that we have, but also those beliefs that we want to hold on to. Other times we've talked about how the Spirit has to penetrate down into those dark corners of our heart that we want to hide. The Spirit also has to penetrate down into those things that we assume are good and okay. Everything has to go back on the table in this process of reformation because it has to give way to the authority of Scripture. Only Scripture under the power of the Holy Spirit can tell us the will of God. And we must yield up even those things that seem right in our society, if Scripture demands it. Paul's calling the Romans, saying you're going to have to live as radicals in Rome. If I'm going to come there, and it's going to be the basis of any future work in spreading the gospel, you're going to have to do this work of reformation. It's only then that you'll be prepared to support me. So we, too, are going to have to become radicals in our society. Not bomb throwers, not terrorists. But people are going to look at us and say, those people aren't doing what they're told. If you're an unbeliever, you're a slave to society's view of what is right. You're a slave to your own sinful desires. If you try to do the things that Paul's going to command us to do in the next several chapters without the active participation of the Holy Spirit and the inner reformation, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail spectacularly. If what Paul encourages the, the Romans to do in these next several chapters begins to appeal to you, as an unbeliever, don't do it. First, become a believer. Look at what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. You must believe in Christ and be baptized. And it's only then that we will receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. So if you're an unbeliever and you're following these things and they sound good to you, press on, go all the way, receive Christ. Cry out to him to do this work of reformation, to give you the Holy Spirit. Come forward to be baptized. It's only when we do these things that God will receive our worship. Another way to say it is, God will receive no other worship from a believer or an unbeliever than what is described in Scripture. He will receive only worship that is holy, that is pleasing and acceptable to Him. Praise the Lord. Paul's going to teach us in the next several chapters what those things are. So, in conclusion, having taught us so much of God's eternal purposes and salvation, Paul is encouraging us, appealing to us even, to press on with a full reformation of our lives. As a believer, you have the new life in Christ. But in the upcoming chapters, Paul is going to show us how the full Christian life must be lived. Within the church, in relation to state and society, in the friction that's going to occur between weak and strong believers. In short, Paul wants to convince us that we haven't simply changed religion, but we are now priests of Christ, offering our whole lives as holy offerings in the name of Christ. Do you see that little parallel? Christ is the great high priest. He offers that perfect sacrifice. And now if you want to see obedience, if you want to see thanksgiving in your life, you see that you are a little priest of Christ, offering the little sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is just your whole life. See how you're doing what he has done? 
He's the greater, we're the lesser, but we are imitators of him. When you leave worship today, you must confront this reality. You who are a new work in Christ, whether strong or weak, a new believer or mature, must continue the transformation of your mind. None of us have arrived. None of us are complete and perfect. It begins with your mind. It extends to your body. It is your whole life because you are to be a holy, sanctified offering to the Lord. We must constantly be reforming what we think we know is right from society, from our upbringing. We must engage in this heart-first approach and have this thorough commitment to Christ because that's the only thing that will allow us to understand and to do what Paul is going to teach us in the final chapters of the book of Romans. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we see that we are so weak and so distracted and enthralled to sin that we can't do any of these things without you. Give us your spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Enable us to be led by your spirit. Break down the walls of resistance to your word. And let us be that pleasing sacrifice, that acceptable offering that you desire. Do the work in us that you've promised to do. We know you'll do it. We praise you and love you because you are a God who has taken on the whole work of salvation. You are a God that regarded us when we were enemies and hostile to you. Lord, we pray as we study the rest of the book of Romans that you will liberally give us your spirit, that you will transform our minds, that you will transform our church, that whatever good efforts we have done, that we will press on and be the church that you desire us to be, that we will be the holy stones of a temple to you, that we will be little priests offering ourselves as pleasing sacrifice in imitation and in conformity to the image of your beloved Son. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.